Hey everyone, Asim here. Carbon Hack is back this year. The hackathon will take place from Monday, March the 18th to Monday, April the 8th, 2024. Carbon Hack 24 is all about redefining the way we measure software to reduce its environmental footprint. At the heart of this hackathon is Impact Framework, an open source tool that lets you compute and report the environmental impacts of software applications accurately. Here's the challenge. In small teams, participants will have the freedom to choose from a variety of prize categories. So how can you become part of Carbon Hack 24? It's as simple as signing up on our website at grnsft.org forward slash hack forward slash podcast. Join us for three weeks of exciting challenges where engineers, designers, and content creators will use Impact Framework to measure software's environmental footprint. We can't wait to see what innovations and solutions emerge from this incredible event. See you there. I am excited about the Green Software Foundation for the very reason that I think this is about a movement of technologists who are really sort of coming up with innovative, creative ways to address this problem. And so the way we need to take this forward is get CIOs to the table and say, now how do we sort of come together and think about mutual benefit? How do we sort of make this a systems approach within the organization to tackle all the different parts that we need to tackle? Hello, and welcome to Environment Variables, brought to you by the Green Software Foundation. In each episode, we discuss the latest news and events surrounding green software. On our show, you can expect candid conversations with top experts in their field who have a passion for how to reduce the greenhouse gas emissions of software. I'm your host, Asim Hussain. Hey everyone, Chris, the producer of Environment Variables here with a quick note to say that the following episode of the podcast was taken from a panel discussion from the recent Green Software Foundation Global Summit. If you would like to hear and see an unfiltered, raw version of this discussion, head on over to our YouTube channel and look for the video entitled GSF Global Summit Closing Ceremony 2022. In fact, I'll do you one better and add a link below in the show notes of the podcast So head there, click the link, and you can check out not only that discussion, but all the other episodes of the Environment Variables podcast too. Now, on with the show. Welcome. My name is Asim Hussain, and I'm excited today to host a panel with guests from the Green Software Foundation. Hi there. I'm Chris Lloyd-Jones. Hi there. My name's Chris Adams. Oh, sorry, Anne. (laughs) <laughs> and hi, I'm Anne Curry. Hi, Elise Salakowski. Awesome. I've got some wonderful, uh, interesting questions, hopefully, for all of you. I'd love to hear your opinions on very interesting topics around green software. My first question is, you know, what's driving? I personally have experienced a lot more interest in this space in kind of the, the last year at the very least. What do you think is driving interest in green software in, across the industry? I'll, I'll, I'll Chris Lloyd-Jones, why don't you go ahead with that one? Sure. So for me, I think it's the growing understanding from individuals that our way of life needs to be greener, to be sustainable and to be resilient. And now there's a lot of talk from governments and around setting targets and policies, and those are very important. But green software lets every individual make an impact and make a difference, which I think is a differentiator from all the other initiatives that are going on. 
Mm, yeah, really good point. I I, I feel there's a, a groundswell movement across the world as well. Yes, Elise, what's your what's your thoughts on that on that question? Yeah, I would I would echo that and just say I mean I think that technologists today are are, are growing up with more and more real sort of impacts from climate change. They're seeing them manifested in ways that are really impacting how they experience the world around them and how they think about their future. And organizations like the Green Software Foundation that really provide a forum to take action and to feel like you have agency to really make a change and sort of really not just to make a change broadly, but make a change in what you're building every day really gives people a sense of the power to change. And I think that that is one of the the most exciting things about the, the Green Software Foundation. I also just think that, you know, Organizations are increasingly adopting ESG frameworks. I think there's more and more accountability expectations around that. And of course, organizations that that have an outsized emissions footprint from their IT, right, are going to be looking at green software as one of the big opportunities to make an impact. Yeah, wonderful. Uh, that, that, that's, yeah, that, that's definitely aligned to my thinking as well. So given the fact that organizations, you know, they're interested in green software, but they need to adopt, you know, processes, principles, patterns of of engineering in order to greenify their their software and reduce the emissions of software. What what's needed in your mind for organizations to to adopt these patterns and principles? Uh, Chris Adams, what what's your thoughts in, in that area? So the really a big big one, right, is capacity, like organizations having the skills in-house to do this. And you know how when like Ruby on Rails might have come out and then people were saying, I want a Ruby on Rails developer with 10 years experience when the framework's only a year old. <laughs> we are kind of seeing something a little bit like that right now, yeah. where all, various organizations are trying to hire and ask for this stuff. And they're not quite sure what they're after. And we have this kind of shortage right now. So if anything, there's a real the need to have some kind of way to provide, to kind of get this level of, of, of skill and competency up quite high, actually. And and I think this is something you've spoken about quite a lot, actually, as well. Yes, yeah, because we have to make sure that being green doesn't conflict with developer productivity in anybody's mind, because in the end, developer productivity will always win. There are hardly any developers that compared to how many we need in the industry. We need more. And so everybody wants to use them to deliver on business goals, not kind of climate goals, really. So one thing that I think will really help and is definitely helping at the moment is where you get open source or cloud providers who are offering services that are both good for developer productivity and also greener. The more we can we can raise the profile of that and push it, the more likely we are to get take up because what we cannot ask people to do because they will not do it. I've asked them so many times over the years, we can't get people to rewrite their applications in C or Rust or making things more efficient is too expensive for people in terms of time. So we need to find services that will do it for them, make it the, the default, make it no effort for them, or in fact, mm. less effort for them to choose those solutions. Yeah, I mean, I do, I do think that one of the challenges is that we're either talking about software that hasn't been written, and the vast majority of software which needs to be written has not been written yet. We are very, very early stages in this whole industry we're in right now. But there is also this legacy software that exists that we just have to figure out how do we manage that. And rewriting that in a new language is not an option that you know that flies these days. But there is new developments happening, and maybe some of that stuff will 
will fly if you make those choices earlier on. One of the things, Chris, I just thought, I don't, I don't know if you have any opinions on this or, or whether you've seen anything else uh, on the horizon. I, did, I was very, very delighted to see, I think just yesterday or the day before, there were, there are several you know job roles out there. I saw some for Amazon of a sustainable solutions architect. And I'm starting to see a more and more and more. And I know some of your organizations have roles, you know, with the title of Green in the title. I mean, what's what, what do you see in terms of the job market regarding kind of our space? Do you see a lot of growth in this area? There is definitely interest in this, often at a kind of executive level and often at a kind of developer on the kind of in the trenches level. But the, the part in the middle, people aren't quite sure how to kind of prioritize or even ask for it or even specify it right now. So like people asking, like, well, how do I buy a green, a greener version of any kind of service right now? There's a real gap there right now. And I think even at the architectural level, we don't really have the language yet or it's not that common to really kind of talk about the trade-offs you might be doing. So like I could do one thing here, which takes advantage of how the energy markets have totally changed over the last 10 years to, to change the economics, right? But I don't know how to talk about the, to the trade-offs that might be, that I might make in order to unlock that stuff. And I think you kind of need this capacity or these abilities at the design level right now before mm. you can kind of get to the implementation part. That's what I feel is a real kind of gap right now until we have like an iron triangle for things like greener software for example or this stuff here i think we're going to struggle to have like informed decisions about how you're going to spend a developer's time budget or an actual cash money budget on things that's probably one of the big gaps i see in the next six to 12 months that needs to be kind of plugged i suppose i just want to weigh in on the chasm there one thing that i've noticed is that some organizations are starting to see this as an either or that you either focus on sustainability in your business model and circular economy, or you do green software. Whereas actually the personas and the people doing these things are very different. I think you can have sustainability in your technology and sustainability with technology. And I think organizations don't need to take that kind of zero sum approach to sort of focusing on where they need to change. Yeah, great point, great point. And I think that's that, that's the interesting question is, is is there is a gap. There's a gap between different types of roles, but there's also a gap between, as you mentioned, Chris, CIO to, to, to in the trenches, they're in the middle, there's kind of this, this knowledge gap. And once that gets filled, then the rest of the roles and the understanding will spread throughout an organization. But then that leads to one of my favorite questions, which is where will change come from? I think there's been lots of attention, thought, strategy, attempts, in the past, going kind of top down, CIO, CEO, down to the down to the further down an organization. And there's been other attempts going from maybe more, I call it in the trenches, on the front lines, let's say, oh God, so all these awful war metaphors, we need to stop using them, uh, up, up, up the chain. Where do you think the kind of main driver for adoption of green software will come from? Which direction? I'm going to ask at least this question first. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's right. Sort of one of the unique features of and 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 dare I say our theory of change, right, at the Green Software Foundation, is that we can create kind of a groundswell movement here of technologists who are really driving driving change. But of course, there needs to be support structures in place, right? And there needs to be enablement from CIOs and other members of the team. And to the point that was just made, 
you know, there needs to be kind of a systems approach to think about things as integrated, right? This is not, you know, an either or scenario. We need to kind of look at strategies that embed sustainability approaches throughout the entire space within the company. But I think that CIOs are increasingly understanding that they play a role in an organization's sustainability ambitions. I think, as I mentioned earlier, I think ESG is, is part of that regulation, sort of driving more expectations around environmental performance. But I think that I am excited about the Green Software Foundation for the very reason that I think this is about a movement of technologists who are are really sort of coming up with innovative, creative ways to address this problem. And so the next sort of step or the, the way we need to take this forward is, is get CIOs to the table and say, now, how do we sort of come together and think about mutual benefit? How do we sort of make this a systems approach within the organization to tackle all the different parts that we need to tackle? Yeah, a holistic approach. We need everybody at the table. But yeah, they're definitely there. The, uh, I know you have certain opinions. <laughs> I do. I, I'm a big I'm a big believer in the middle middle managers as being the kind of the secret key to this because ten years ago in the financial services industry when they wanted to try and stop everybody being cowboys and there'd just been a huge financial crash or whatever and they wanted everybody to behave a bit better they realised that actually the key to that was the middle managers because. People at the bottom have, might have enthusiasm, but they didn't really have the power to make any changes. And they were all young, they didn't really know how to do it. People at the top would quite often get on board and say, yeah, we want to do this. But everybody assumed they were just lying in the middle and would just stamp on all the projects as soon as they, they got anywhere. So we, it's it's kind of senior architects, middle managers. Other, otherwise, they have a tendency to just kill everything. For mm. often a good reason, because they know that loads of projects get kicked off that are actually bad for the business. And their job is usually to keep the business alive and running and, and operating and, and not easily, you know, not because somebody's, the CEO's neighbours once said that they thought this was a good idea. So everybody has to drop everything and do it. They're there to protect from that and, and kill those projects. So we need to persuade them. Otherwise, everything's killed is stone dead so yeah we need it's all, as as elise said it's holistic everybody has to be convinced and we can't leave them to the end or they'll stop everything according to anne we should fire all the cios and middle management jobs to say no okay got it um, <laughs> chris allens were you about to put your hand up yeah yeah you i was indeed it. yeah like a little schoolboy i think there's actually I think it's worth looking at the role that policymakers have been playing in this uh, in there. And we can also look to other places where people started introducing things like what you might refer to as, well, not really non-functional requirements, but like other kind of key kind of indicators of quality. And you might think about things like, say, accessibility. If you look how accessibility was something which has now become relatively mainstream in terms of like working, yeah, you had a push at a kind of regulatory level where people would say every single website built with public sector money now has to meet a minimum level. But you also needed something like ways to convert those ideas into something that people can act upon. Like if you have like a web content accessibility guidelines, you've got poor, which is like, you know, perceivable, operable, understandable, robust. You kind of need something like that for green software right now to make it a bit easier for people to manage success in this. And so like basically a product manager or someone is able to kind of accept something and say, yeah, this is actually meeting these criteria here. And right now, 
we don't quite have that, but it would be really lovely to have something like that to make it a bit easier for the people who are at that mid-level to essentially guide people along the way or at least tell when something is actually hitting the targets they think it's supposed to be hitting, for example. We need the C-level to say yes. We need the, we need the middle, middle management to say yes, but also have the knowledge and the tools and the information to be able to guide and drive and, and, and drive work in, in, in the right direction. I also think it's interesting about the accessibility aspects of it. A lot of people assume that you know, a lot of accessibility arguments don't have financial benefits. There's huge financial benefits to accessibility arguments. I mean, it's like in some circumstances, it's you know, a significant percentage of your customer base is someone who is you know, differently, and because you know, it can also be temporal as well, like because you can, you know, maybe have a baby for so if you don't well, have one arm for like six exactly. months. Yeah. Well, this is the thing actually seemed like, I mean, so Microsoft did have some stuff like this, which is quite helpful when they spoke about things like situational, positional kind of disabilities. That is actually really useful in having the vocabulary to actually realize that there are mm. benefits in lots of other places. We don't quite have that language in like, technology right now, but it does exist. People do talk about co-benefits all the time. You can talk about greening electricity, for example, and saving literally millions of lives each year that would otherwise be cut short with like particulate matter. There's all these things you can talk about and there's arguments you can make to say, well, maybe your staff might want to hang around more if they feel like they're part of the good side for with using advanced humane things rather than this really, really weird 20th century kind of stuff from before. There's all this stuff that we could be talking about. And I don't know about you, but I think most developers would rather build Star Trek than build Mad Max. And I think this is like <laughs> a way to talk about this, right? Yeah. That is true. I'd say that even with the code benefits you're talking about, I mean, that's kind of the values driven. It is the right thing to do. I think the thing around green software, there's almost a pragmatic business case without kind of wanting to relate everything back to money. If you reduce electricity in a data center, you reduce spend. Right. If you reduce consumption in the cloud, you reduce spend. So much as I think we should do this because it's the right thing to do, if it does come down to a business case for the bottom line, for the pound, the dollar, the euro, there's also going to be a very strong, almost linear correlation between reduced carbon and reduced money. And you can invest that in training, I think, to then help those middle managers stop squashing all these projects. Yeah, yeah no, that's right. The optimization is, is key. And I think that gets back to that point where, you know, companies with sort of outsized impact from their IT are moving more quickly to kind of look at where those opportunities are, right? There's sort of environmental benefits, right? But there's also that that big cost-saving opportunity when you take this on. Yeah, absolutely. So this is the thing that, again, we can look from other sectors that do things like this. Like if you value something, then you can literally value it. You can price it. Uh, like you see organizations doing this all the time. Like I'm going to point to Microsoft because they have done things like this. They have like an internal pr carbon price. So you've got a kind of carbon war chest for this cool green stuff but they've also got things to say well maybe there's something which is actually we're struggling to kind of bring down the emissions right for example like aviation that's got a different internal carbon price so you can price things to actually do this and like this is literally what boeing have been doing for like 20 to 30 years to achieve weight savings they basically automatically give any engineer a kind of budget that they're, they're able to spend to buy weight savings and i think you can do these kind of stuff there's all these management patterns that are, that are like used in lots of places which would work really well in this field and now i'm going to hand over to Anne because i think she's got something to say here as well yeah because i i totally disagree with all of you on this so so this is a good thing on the panel i totally disagree with you i don't think i don't think cost savings sell to enterprises because they don't 
because for them, the cost of developers exceeds cost of operating mm. data. They, that's why they move to the cloud, because they're willing to pay more in order to give their developers less work to do. So I don't think that's an, an argument that, lad, how, having said that, I think it is an argument that, that can be made and is convincing if you operate a data center, because there, the electricity cost is a really key part of your business costs. So aviation, aviation fuel is a really key part of your business cost. You, yeah. you will go out of business if aviation fuel, if you spend too much on aviation fuel, but it's not, you will not go out of business in the tech industry because you spend too much money on your data center. You go out of business because your key business whatever it is, isn't generating the income you yeah. want it to. It's not your number one priority. I think it depends on who you're speaking to, though. The C-suite level, for sure, that's not going to make an impact. But again, I'm going to use your analogy of middle managers. If you're looking at your spend and you look at what the spend was before and you're seeing your use of functions, be that an Azure or Lambda function spiking, and you see your app services, I think even if it might not materially impact the business, those people panic. So having a way to see that they can keep their costs in check and also, I guess, sell upwards, manage upwards, that they're being green, doing the right things. I'm not actually saying it's a key business driver, but it helps those people make decisions, which might be a bit Machiavellian, maybe. <laughs> I think I think it's a co-benefit. And I think that's one of the things. There has to be, there's multiple vectors in making decisions. I think I do, I do agree with Anne to a certain degree that I think if it's the only argument you're putting forward, it won't it won't land. But if you're saying it's it's got this benefit, this benefit, this benefit, it is greener, it's faster, it's more reliable, all those things added together, I do think I do think it adds, it adds it's not nothing. When I talk about pricing something, I'm not necessarily saying the cost of a compute, for example. You can cost things in all these different ways, and there's a whole set of management theory all around cost of delay, which is like, what is the cost of, of us not shipping this product, for example, the day before Okay, let's choose a bad example, like Black Monday or something like that, right? That is a clear cost of doing that, right? And that's what I'm talking about. We price things accordingly. And if you're able to talk about this, and and then and if you if you accept that in many cases organizations are driven by numbers, if you can translate these into that incredibly reductive single one dimension that helps you get make it argue for something, then I think that's actually useful. And we have patterns for doing this kind of stuff. So it's not necessarily the cost of compute; it's the cost of the opportunity cost of what you could be doing otherwise, for example. You can express these in numerical form and people make lots and lots of money building models and designing and managing this way anyway. So I think that you could apply this to carbon because there are absolutely consequences. Well, the science spells out there are consequences for us not pricing in carbon into how we work. If you're working for a for-profit organization, it's a, it's money. It's, you know, you're, that, that's what that's the purpose of the organization is to, is to make a profit. It's a for-profit organization. But there's other aspects of the world. You know, we have this free market, but then we hopefully we have regulations and regulatory authorities that work that can temper and control the excesses perhaps of a, of a free market economy. So we talked a lot about, you know, if, if there was just a money argument, just a market-driven money argument, you know, what, what, what could happen? What are some regulatory policies that if, if they came out would help accelerate the adoption of not just green software, but, you know, more sustainable tech solutions? If we cast our mind back, we talked earlier about accessibility and, and you know, that, that, that that's useful for generating additional customers and things. But actually, I, I remember at the time I was head of IT for a lingerie company 
And the main argument for why we should make the site accessible was that the SEO was better. Google used to give you an SEO boost if you were accessible. And that was one of the key performance indicators that they had, which was, where are you in Google? That was a top line item for every C-suite business discussion. So you could easily say, well, we have to be accessible because it'll move us up through Google. And that was the reason why, you know, it was, it was clearly a measurable thing I think people really cared about. And I also used to work for companies like Microsoft. And for them, the reason to go for accessibility was that there were government mandates on accessibility standards that a lot of applications had to pass. So that was, well, you just cannot sell into the US government, which is a key customer that you want if you don't meet these levels. So if we had something like that again, that would be effective. Um, in the past, that was effective, and I think it would be effective again. So how do we get those kind of like both business, so Google provided the push through the SEO and government provided the push through, you have to have these meet these standards in order to sell to us. That was effective. So like this is currently happening in Germany and in Hong Kong already. So I think last month, the first ever eco-certified software was granted the German Blau Engel or Blue Angel certificate. And one of the reasons that people were doing that was because in government, which in many cases have legally binding targets to reduce emissions, they need to have a thing to ask for. So now you see that and there is now a German project called Software which is like soft aware, but with a kind of German accent. What that does, <laughs> that's basically something a bit like continuous integration, checking every single time, mm -hmm. are, are, you make, are you moving forward or moving backwards in terms of the actual missions associated with any of the things you're doing? So there are loads of efforts like this, but it's still early days. There's Germany and there's Hong Kong, but no one else has any certifications yet, but there is like a loose network of like 28 different countries who are trying to figure out what to be asking for so that when they put a big fat procurement tender in, they can say, I need this to be, I don't know, instead of perceivable, operable, understandable, and oh Christ, robust, maybe green, open, lean, decentralized, gold, something like that. We need to have things like that for it, really. Yeah, and I'll just add, I think that's, I mean, that's right, the role of the Green Software Foundation, right, is, is we have this forum to help drive and sort of bring kind of alignment, right, to this question of like, what does good look like? And what should we be really aiming for as a community? And our, I think our approach and our processes, you know, are based on transparent principles, right? And, and really about let's get everyone at the table and really talk about this in an open forum. And so I think that regulation is key, but we need to sort of get to a place where we start to, to drive that alignment on, hey, this is kind of a good stand and keep building, as you say, Chris, more sort of visibility and awareness in this space. Yeah, wonderful. So it's, even when it comes to government influence, it's still, we're still coming back to money because it's like, where where is the government going to spend its money? But I think that will evolve to something hopefully a bit closer to policy and regulation. And I would also say that you know, Google, the Google SEO example, that was a Google policy. That was yeah. a decision that they made, not, I don't know, we probably had some, I don't know the background of that decision, so I'm just guessing, but it was a decision that they made which drove a lot of action from a lot of organizations. And that's why these things are such great levers to, to pull, because a, a small change can have a big impact. As we're kind of reaching the end of the, of the, of, of the panel, we might have gone over a little bit. But uh, I just wanted to ask each of you, you know, what advice do you have for someone looking to start having conversations regarding green software in, you know, in their roles or even just in their communities? Let's start with you, Chris Lowe-Jones. Do you have any advice for people? So for me, it would be about identifying that business case to support green software, but also understanding your culture. I mean, 
focusing again going to repeat it on that middle management example i do think you need to know what your organization is motivated by and be quite honest about that if you are a pragmatic organization cost or one of the other drivers chris mentioned will be important for some organizations it being the right thing to do will be enough to start these conversations you need that organizational support to have that driver to support adoption you also need a sponsor because without that buy-in it will be difficult to encourage teams to actually adopt these new practices go out for training like like Anne was saying if you're taking away from developer productivity there has to be a really strong reason for that so that's the top down i think the other thing i would say to start having conversations would be grassroots advocacy meet other like-minded individuals those would be my two main ones great piece of advice chris Anne, what's your thoughts well, my thought would be, remember, you have consumer power. Almost everyone in the tech industry has consumer power to make change. So yes. when, you're buying, when you're buying stuff or when you're thinking about buying stuff, talk to your suppliers and say, I care about this. And this will this is something that will make the difference between whether I buy from you or I buy from somebody else. Because if you can then get them to go and change their products, either immediately or just because it's the feedback they're getting from their customers that will have outsized impacts without you having to do anything at all or get any internal sign off. Just just ask for it. Great. Absolutely. Use your wallet. Chris Adams, what's your thoughts? I'm actually going to agree with a lot of what Anne just said. There's a whole phenomena called the values perception gap that's common in psychology where everyone basically assumes that everyone else doesn't care about anything until they ask them and realize that they do care about things. Mm -hmm. And like until you do that and are explicit about that or explicitly give a team permission to do this or explicitly talk to someone, they'll basically assume that you do not care. And if you don't do that, then, well, we're kind of here because everyone is assuming that no one else cares and no one is prepared to ask, like, can you please do to cloud provider or, hey team, do you reckon people might want to join us if like we were bought some, we look more like the good guys rather than the bad guys? There's all this stuff that we could be doing. And I feel like a lot of the time is basically be very explicit about this, about what you're after and what your values actually are. Lead with your values in many cases, but back them up with some numbers that you can come up to justify when someone is asking, when someone is challenging you later on. Wonderful, yeah. And I will I will just add to that. I do work for one of those large cloud providers and I will I will say that the sales orgs, they do they, it is flagged. It is put in a database when a customer reaches out and complains about what anything, but like specifically there's a there's you know if they if if the request or suggestion is around sustainability, it is flagged and it go it does go in a database, which is brought up in discussions. <laughs> At least with you, like, what are your, what's your, what's your guidance? Yeah, I, I would say all, all great points and all part of the kind of systems thinking that needs to be applied here of sort of activating, right, sort of different stakeholders and levers within an organization. You know, I can speak, you know, you know, specifically to to ThoughtWorks. You know, one of the things that I have found, you know, we are a very decentralized culture, we're a very ad agile culture. And it's been so important for us to find champions in different parts of the business and then do the education and training and bring them along. And, and we've learned a lot from our participation already in the, in the foundation. But just getting enough people who are starting to spread the word, you know, sort of in a, frankly, in a grassroots, right, sort of like pollinating different parts of the business. So you have... Suddenly you have this sort of like, oh, I'm hearing about this over here. Oh, and I'm hearing about this over there. And then as you're sort of building that business case that Chris is talking about, you know, and putting this together, you've already sort of primed the organization culturally and kind of gotten enough momentum building that, that it I feel like you can just move then more quickly and get, gain more momentum. But definitely I, I feel like that grassroots 
piece has been very important at ThoughtWorks, even though we're a very purpose-led company, it's just the the way our organization works, you need to kind of do that pollination. Yeah, yeah I, I would I would absolutely agree with you. I think that we one of the things people don't realize about Microsoft is it has one of the largest kind of green teams of any organization in the world. I think we're almost 6,000 people now in the organization kind of actively sit and participate and talk and and, and make it very, very clear that sustainability is a value to them. And, and I think that's a strong signal to everybody else in an organization, to so the middle management and the CIA, CTOs <laughs> and the CIOs, that you know, if they were to make a, a decision around sustainability, it would be, it would be supported. So, um, so yeah, absolutely. I agree with all of you, all of your opinions. Thank you. <laughs> thank you all of you. Thank you all of you for being part of this panel and thank you for being part of the foundation, your guidance and support and your knowledge is instrumental in us achieving our mission and our goals. Thank you all. Wonderful. Thanks so much. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. Just a reminder to follow Environment Variables on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do leave a rating and review if you like what we're doing. It helps other people discover the show and of course we want more listeners. To find out more about the Green Software Foundation, please visit greensoftware.foundation. Thanks again and see you in the next episode.